Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. I don't often give titles to sermons, but uh, we're going to talk this morning about following God down difficult paths. This passage of scripture struck me this week. I honestly thought that as we sort of dug back into this book, we'd get through the end of chapter 13 and we'd start rolling our way through Exodus 14 because that's where we come up against uh, the Red Sea and a lot of that powerful drama. But this passage of scripture, I think, has some really important things for you and me this morning. The nation of Israel has been freed from slavery and Egypt This is the first passage of scripture in which we know that they are now literally walking out of the nation of Egypt and on their way toward the promised land. But technically speaking, their deliverance is not yet complete. There's still some really important things for God to do along the way. They're gonna need to travel through the wilderness to make their way to the promised land. We're going to discover a little bit later on that Pharaoh is still hardened in his heart. He changes his mind and he pursues the Israelites through the wilderness. There's still a lot to go. So the journey is just the beginning. And the God who overcame the Egyptians through the plagues in the night of the Passover, he will continue to be powerful on behalf of the people of God. So more deliverance is needed. Even though it changes in its character a little bit, they still need the deliverance and the power of God. So as everything happens in the next couple of chapters, the journey to the promised land now begins. Now there's land between them and the promised land. There's a wilderness, there's a ways to go, but it's actually not that far away. There is a straight path from where they leave in Egypt to the southern region of the promised land, what we would think of as Israel today. But that's not the way that they end up going. So now as we spend time with this passage, as we begin to follow Israel as they make their way through the wilderness, there is this dynamic you and I are now forced to face and to make sense of especially inside of our lives. And it's a dynamic of leading and following, of obedience and faithfulness. What is God up to? Will we follow him even when we don't know what's happening? God is going to lead his people. He's gonna lead them in powerful ways. Many of us, our minds are probably making its way to the parting of the Red Sea and all that that means, but God is going to lead them, yes, in powerful ways, but in unexpected ways. And if they follow him, they will become the people of God. Instead of people who are more like Egyptians than like their God, they're gonna become more like their God instead of like the Egyptians. If they follow, they will become the people of God. If they follow, they will enter the promised land. And if they follow, God will be glorified. Some incredible things are gonna happen in the next few passages of scripture. So here's what I want us to keep our eyes on today in this passage. And first of all, this is really straightforward. God leads his people. God leads his people. First of all, this needs to be true for us. 
There needs to be something about this that becomes automatic for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus Christ, that God is the one who leads us. This needs to become an obvious reality to us, even if we don't always do it perfectly, which we don't. Even if we don't always know exactly what that means, this needs to become critical, core to who we are, that God is the one who leads us, that we submit to the lordship and the leading of God. This means we follow. God will sometimes lead us in ways that just do not make sense. But we follow him because we are not God, we belong to God. Does that make sense? We follow because we're not God, we belong to God. So God leads his people. And then I wanna talk about what it means to obey and trust. So we obey as we follow God, and then we trust. We trust that what he is doing is right and good and wise, even if some of us might disagree from time to time. It's not show a a show of hands, if you've ever disagreed, God, okay? But we obey and then we trust. This passage is gonna show us both sides of that dynamic and it's gonna do it in a really interesting way. God's people will follow him not knowing exactly what's going to happen next or why a particular decision is made. And then another detail that's right in the middle of this passage that's just absolutely fascinating, and it might feel like it comes out of left field to us, but they pick up the body of Joseph, and they carry Joseph from Egypt all the way through the wilderness to the promised land. Joseph told them, you're going to do this. God will lead you out of Egypt, and you will take my body and back to the promised land. Now this is hundreds of years before the events of Exodus chapter 13. Moses is going to lead in faith and trust. Joseph died in trust. And now that circle is being completed in this passage of scripture today. So let's read this, the end of Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. It's time to go. And the text says, 
God did not lead them by the way that goes to the Philistines, by the way of the land of the Philistines. Now, there is, as a matter of fact, quite a bit of land between them where they leave in the northern region of Egypt. We're going to look at a map here in a second because this is really going to get exciting. They're going to leave the northern region of Egypt, and it's actually not that far uh, through the land of the Philistines into the promised land. And this is a path, actually. It's a known road between Egypt and what we would today call Israel. It's a path that actually leads them along the Mediterranean Sea. There's a way in which they could go from Egypt to the Promised Land, and they have the cool breezes of the Mediterranean Ocean there next to them, and they've got water, and they can fish. They've got food. They have provisions. They have a relatively easy path. But that path is occupied by another group of people. God says, lest they find war amongst the Philistines, and the implication is become discouraged by what has happened and go back to Egypt and make themselves slaves again. There's another nation there, the Philistines. Now, this is important to the history of the people of God in the Old Testament. So I want to think for a moment about what it means for the Philistines to be there, why it's important to God and to Israel that this detail is put in this passage of Scripture. The Philistines are an interesting ancient group of people. Uh, They sort of show up out of the, the fog of ancient history. They were most likely a seafaring people that came from the ancient coasts of Greece and fought their way into Turkey, into Canaan, okay, where modern-day Israel is now, and even into Egypt. So the Philistines are a rather powerful group of people, and they've been around for a while. And they're a very idolatrous and uh, warmongering group of people. And as uh, the story of Israel continues... We make our way through the wilderness wanderings, and at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, there's the nation of Israel on the eastern shore of the Jordan River getting ready to cross over. Moses dies, and Joshua takes up the mantle. You read in the book of Joshua about the conquest of the land of Canaan, and one of the commands that God gave Joshua was to wipe out the other nations that were there, including the Philistines. Well, Joshua and Israel do a partial job of that, So as Israel inhabits the land, the Philistines are still there. And as long as the Philistines are there, there's constant conflict and warfare. And the Philistines are a constant temptation to worship other gods, to leave the Lord their God who led them out of Egypt and to begin to worship other gods. So Joshua dies, and the next book in the chronology of the Old Testament is the story of the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, the theme of that book is this is what happens when the people of God become like the Philistines instead of the Philistines becoming like the people of God. So the book of Judges is just a toilet bowl that spirals down and down and down and down and down. Right smack dab in the middle of that is one of the stories many of us remember, the story of Samson. So all of that warfare and tension and idolatry and marriage and divorce and betrayal and death, that's all has to do with the Philistines. It's the kind of influence this nation has on Israel. After the book of Judges come the kings and we get Saul and he fails to eliminate the Philistines. Finally, when we get to David and Solomon, that's when the Philistines are dealt with. 
That's a long time in the future. And so here, very early on, God says, I cannot allow my people to come in contact with the Philistines. There will be war, there will be temptation, and they will turn back to Egypt if they go that way. God knows what it means for Israel to encounter the Philistines. It means war. It will be literal war, and it will become spiritual battle as well. If they go that way, God knows that the Israelites will choose to return to slavery instead of enduring the warfare required to enter the promised land. So what does God do? The text says, so the Lord says, it's you know, as if this is what God's decision is. God then leads the people by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. He turns them in a different direction. What does this look like? It's important for us to realize this morning what this looks like. We've got a map. We're gonna spend some time with the map. Every now and then maps are a kick, right? Now, there are a lot of questions about the exact routes and where the Mount Sinai is and all, all these kinds of questions. We're not here to settle any of that this morning. There's one particular detail I want us to physically see. I even have a laser pointer. This, this is going to be exciting. You're going to tell your kids about this someday, I'm telling you. Lower Egypt, the city of Ramses. This is the area of the land of Goshen. This is what Joseph was given. This is what the people of Israel were given, the best land in Egypt. So this is where they leave from. Go to the upper right-hand side of this map, and you see the Dead Sea and where eventually the city of Jerusalem is. Now think for a moment. That's where the city of Jerusalem is. That means the southern border of promised land is somewhere in here. Now look at that. Ramses, promised land. Egypt, promised land. There was an ancient route, a road, a known road, a road of commercial and military activity. And it's this road right here. And this is the way to the land of the Philistines. That's where the Philistines are. God says, we can't go that way. So he turns them into the wilderness and leaves them in the Red Sea. So right here, God turns right, and here they go. Now, what the red line there is there is what's called the traditional route of the Exodus. So for a long time, the church thought that's just, this is probably the way Israel went. There's another road here that might be another way that they actually went, make their way over here, right? There are all these possibilities. At the very least, they didn't go here, and they didn't go here. They went this way. Who on earth would choose that route? God chooses it. He leads them into the wilderness and toward the Red Sea. Why would God choose that route? That's the question. That's the question. So we begin to see that God leads his people 
in an unexpected direction. It's the long route, maybe the much longer route. A shorter route is available, but God actually does not let them take that one. Not only that, but God is going to lead them to another insurmountable obstacle. He leads the people into the wilderness toward the Red Sea. There's going to come a point in this wandering when they come up against the Red Sea and they can't cross it. And who shows up on the rear guard but Pharaoh and his armies? This is where God is leading them. Why does God turn right instead of going straight into the promised land? What is God up to? Why is God doing this? Well, we already have one of those answers. If they take the easy route, they will abandon God. Let that thought sink in for a moment. If they take the easy route, they will abandon God, and God knows it. Friends, there is an easy route right now. The world in which we live as followers of Jesus Christ, there is an easy path to take, but God knows that if we take it, we will abandon God. The people who live, this is stunning, that the people who lived in slavery for generations will voluntarily re-enslave themselves if they take the easy route. God says, lest they have war with the Philistines and go back to Egypt and become slaves again. After everything God has done for them, after everything they've gone through, they will voluntarily re-enslave themselves. The taste of battle will be too much for them. Interestingly enough, God says, they're equipped for battle in this passage of Scripture. They're equipped for it, but now is not the time. Friends, this is important stuff. God fought their battles in Egypt. and God will fight their battles in the wilderness. He fought their battles in Egypt. God is going to fight their battles in the wilderness. The easy route means apostasy. This means that the long route The difficult route is God's way of protecting his people and bringing them closer to himself. So when God takes them to the Red Sea, he's taking them to another miracle. And on the other side of the Red Sea is Mount Sinai where God himself sets foot on earth and gives the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, and they continue to become his people and be drawn to him and become more like him. When God leads them into the wilderness, it's his way of protecting them and bringing them closer to him. Friends, there just are these seasons in life for the follower of Jesus Christ where God turns right. The pillar of Fire, the pillar of cloud, goes in a direction that we did not expect. But it is God's way of protecting you and me 
from what we don't know yet. And it is his way of bringing me closer to him. Remember, God is creating a people. He's building a nation from a group of slaves. He has taken them out of Egypt, and now he's taking Egypt out of them, and it's gonna be a process. So God's gonna lead them on the long route. So what does God know that they don't know? What does God know that I don't know? What does God know that we don't know? Friends, what conditions in life, what obstacles will break us? We don't always know the answer to that question. God, however, does. Which conditions in life, which obstacles that we face will actually make us more like Christ? will actually bring us closer to him. Turns out God knows which ones those are. What is God protecting us from? What is God preparing us for? One of the reasons this is so significant to me is that I just know, I know from personal experience, I've been doing this job for over 30 years now. I know from my life, I know from the lives of other Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, we are drawn to the easy path. It's not just because we see it as being easy, but we see just over the other side of the hill, well, there's my goal. That's what I need to have happen is right there. Can't I just go that direction? God says, nope, we're gonna turn right. And we're going to do something different. We're drawn to the easy path for all kinds of reasons. But God has different goals for you and me. So he makes different decisions. So he makes different decisions. God is more interested. Now listen to this. I've said this kind of thing before. I want to make sure that we hear this. God is more interested in what it will take to make us more like him. What it will take to kill the sin that is in my soul. What it will take to turn us into people who look more like him than the world than what I want. God is more interested in what it takes to make me more like him than what Phil thinks needs to happen, because I can tell you exactly what I think needs to happen. But what's God's desire? Passage of scripture that just almost immediately came to mind. It's out of the book of James, chapter one. Some of you may even have this rolling through your head right now. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're walking through the wilderness and James says, count it all joy because God is taking you somewhere. God is doing something inside of you, even if you don't yet know what it is. A magnificent devotional 
my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers. You should track down his life's story for a a devotional that has been enormously popular for decades now. Oswald Chambers died in relative obscurity in the Egyptian desert as a chaplain during World War I. But he writes this, or rather his wife writes this from the things that he spoke. And as he is commenting on Jesus walking on the water while the disciples are afraid, he says this, his purpose is that I depend on him and on his power now. If I can stay in the middle of the turmoil, calm and unperplexed, that is the end of the purpose of God. God's end is to enable me to see that he can walk on the chaos of my life just now. I want the storm done I want to get to the other side. Before that happens, Jesus wants me to know that he can walk on the waters. Along the way, there is this crazy detail, this fascinating detail. It says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph told them, God's going to do this for you and you're going to take my bones with you. There's a way of looking at the Exodus as one gigantic funeral procession. Joseph's the only one among them who has been to the promised land. Moses has been to Midian. Aaron's been at least part of the way to Midian. But they haven't been there before. Joseph, so to speak, has. This story goes all the way back to the end of the book of Genesis. And this is actually... Excuse me, where that comes from, Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. You may have forgotten this little detail, but he was an Egyptian ruler. They embalmed him. They took the mummy of Joseph to the promised land. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What is going on here? I love this detail. Israel is beginning a journey of trust in God. They're beginning this journey of faith into the wilderness. They carry with them the fulfillment of trust in God. They don't yet know where they're going. Joseph's been dead for a long time, but he told them, God's gonna visit you, he's gonna give you the land, and you're gonna take me with you. So while they are learning to trust in God and to follow his leading, they carry with them this reminder of a man who died in trust, who died in faith. So along the way in the wilderness, we ask questions like, will God actually fulfill his promises? And when we ask a question like that, especially in the context of this story, we answer it by saying things like, well, do you remember the plagues? Do you remember the power of God? Can you recall these things? Do you remember the Passover? Do you remember that blood had to be shed for every single one of you and you have been saved? Do you remember that? 
God spent a lot of time in the previous chapter and a half on the consecration of the firstborn. That means with every firstborn birth, Israel remember that by shed blood they were saved. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? And then on top of that, now we've got this coffin. Do you see the body of Joseph? We're taking him home. It's incredible. Are you and I aware of the faithfulness of those who have gone before us? It's such an important part of our faith and our trust now. We think of the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 11, it's the story of those who, by faith, did these incredible things as God told them to do this and told them to do this and they obeyed and their lives went a certain direction. It's the story of Abel and Abraham and Moses and on and on that story goes. But the story of Hebrews 11 begins by saying this, now faith or trust in God is the, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. For by it, the people of old, those who have gone before us, have received their commendation. They've received their reward. They died in faithfulness to God. Do we remember that? Do we know those stories? And as all of that unfolds in Hebrews chapter 11, and the chapter resets, and we get to Hebrews chapter 12, then uh, the writer pulls it together for us like this in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's walk through the wilderness in faithfulness. We see these stories from of old. We carry them with us. There's a cloud of witnesses about us. So now we can run. Now we can walk through the wilderness and we can do it in faith. So God's people have taken a turn into the wilderness. Again, they don't know why, but God is leading them along the way. So the text then introduces this incredibly dramatic feature to the wilderness wandering. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of smoke and by night as a pillar of fire so that they would journey they would follow this pillar by day and by night. And God never left them when they were in the wilderness. This is what the text says. So God's presence in the book of Exodus keeps showing up in fire and smoke, in the burning bush. It's going to happen at Mount Sinai. It's going to happen now with his presence in the wilderness. This gigantic, it's a connection between heaven and earth that leads the people of God in the way that they should go. And God just does not leave them. He is with them. He's literally ahead of them. He surrounds them. When they come up against the Red Sea, that pillar of smoke is going to move from in front of them to behind them until God parts the Red Sea 
the people of Israel go. He protects them from Pharaoh until they are safely on the other side. See, this is what the leading of God is doing for his people, even in the wilderness, even in the face of an insurmountable obstacle. God never leaves them. So God will faithfully lead them in ways that they do not want to go. In ways in which they do not see the next step. God will lead them in ways that look like impossibilities. God will lead them and they will be saved. God is not on the easy road. He's not there. That's where the easy road is where the people of God will become slaves to Egypt again. Where the people of God will become part of the kingdom of this world instead of the kingdom of God. It's where the people of God become enslaved to sin again instead of becoming slaves to righteousness. The road may look like the right way and that it's easy, but it is in fact the path of destruction. Taking the easy road means leaving the leading and the protection of the Lord. And the easy road means that we will eventually turn around and enslave ourselves again. So we follow God instead. We obey and we trust. We remember and we carry with us the faithfulness of those who have gone before. So I want to think for a moment or two about following God down difficult paths, doing it as a church, doing it as the family of God, doing it as this literal church, doing it as denominations of churches, as parachurch ministries, doing it as a church, and then doing it as an individual Christian We've said it, but I want to make sure it's clear that as a church, there is an easy path, but there is apostasy there. The church has always faced the temptation to conform to the spirit of the age, to align itself with those who currently have whatever power we find attractive or necessary to get things done. The church has always faced those pressures. The church in our culture is facing it again. And in these last few years, the pressure to take the easy path just continues to grow and it continues to come. And it's heartbreaking to watch churches, denominations, parachurch organizations make the decision that, you know what? I think the easy path is the right path. It is the easy path after all. And everyone else is walking it. So why don't we walk down that path? Why not? Because there's apostasy there. Because you will enslave yourself to sin again and turn away from God. As our culture progresses down this path, and it's the rejection of God, and it's the rejection of the the, the civilizational structure that's been given to us by the Christian tradition and by scripture. And friends, there are parts of our culture that are just rejecting reality itself. 
And there are places in our world right now where there's a lot of pressure upon the church to make that decision. Now, follow me through this train of logic. As individuals and as churches make the decision to walk the easy path, they make the same decision the prodigal son makes. So when finally, at some point, some individual is convicted by God, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them, the prodigal son realizes, I'm walking the easy path. This is the way of the Philistines. I'm lost in my sin. And they are saved. Are they going to go back to the church that's taken the easy path? Or will they find the family of God with the church that has followed God anyway? There has to be a home for them to return to. There has to be a place of salvation, transformation, healing, conviction, repentance, and brand new life. And it is the church that follows God no matter what. If we are called to be salt and light, there will just be times when it's hard to do that. We are called to follow God. The church as a group, we have to be in the word of God so that the word of God leads us. We have to be with the faithful people of God. This becomes more important with every passing week that we are with the faithful people of God. It's important that we know the presence of the Holy Spirit these things are now our pillars of fire and cloud. This is what leads us. This is what guides us. This is what shows us the way. Thinking through this, I thought of a passage in 2 Timothy. The apostle Paul is near the end of his life. He's going to be executed. And so he's writing to this young pastor, Timothy, in Ephesus. And this passage of scripture is often used to talk to young pastors, to encourage them, this is what I need you to do. This is what you should do as a faithful pastor. But I read this passage of scripture not just to talk to potential pastors, but so that we get a glimpse of why a pastor needs to do this. So that we get a glimpse of, here's what's going on inside of the church that needs to be held together instead of let go. Second Timothy chapter four, Paul tells this guy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, be ready when it's easy, and out of season when it's not. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears they will accumulate for themselves in their YouTube playlists, teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, things that are not true. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of evangelists. Tell people about the gospel and fulfill your ministry. As a church, we follow God no matter what. And as a Christian, as an individual, this is the thought I want to leave us with this morning. Doesn't mean I'm gonna finish soon. This just means this is my last major thought. 
God's goals are our sanctification and his glory. God's goals are our sanctification and his glory. So sometimes he takes his people into the wilderness and leads them into an insurmountable obstacle so that we become more like him and he is glorified. These are God's goals. Again, we often have very different goals. But as we follow God, this is, this is the kind of thing that he is up to. What do I mean by our sanctification and his glory? Our sanctification, it's a biblical term and we're people of the words. So we need to make sure we know what this means. It's a biblical term that basically means our spiritual maturity. We're growing, we're growing up into Christ-likeness. We're leaving behind the ways of the world, the sin that so easily entangled us, the sin that we lived in before we were saved, and now we're growing into the person of Jesus Christ. It's just spiritual maturity. This is what sanctification means. And friends, if we are to become more like Christ than the world, we will need to walk through the wilderness from time to time. And when we have our comforts and our control taken away, the only things that can be done will be done by God. In the wilderness, I have no control. At one point, the people of Israel realized they can't even control where the next meal comes from. So they complain. This is what we do. When that control and when that comfort is taken away from me, the only thing that can be done next, the only thing that must be done next, can only be done by God. God is, as it turns out, more interested in my soul than what I would call success. This path is the path of obedience and then trust. He leads, we follow, his word gives us guidance, and we obey. And the clearest path of obedience, friends, is the word of God. Instead of beginning with, well, what's the great big thing? What does God want to do with my life? How important does he want to make me before I die? That's the question we ask. Instead of starting there, we need to ask, what does the word of God tell me to do? He's literally given it to you so that you know his will, his character, his power, the saving truths of the gospel, so that you know the end of the story. If you follow him, you end up with him. What does the word of God tell us to do? Friends, every one of us needs to get to know the word of God. You have to read it, study it, memorize it, and do what it says. Get to know the gospels. Listen to what Jesus tells us. Watch the way he interacts with people and follow him. Do what he says. Get to know Romans chapter 12. Get to know Colossians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 6. 2 Peter chapter 1. Read slowly through Psalm 119 and pray that thing through. I know what it's like. It's late at night. You're doing your devotionals and you get to that Psalm and you think, oh, Great. We're going to make it through 175 verses tonight. It is a glorious psalm. 
about the word of God. Get to know these things. Do what it says. God's goals are our sanctification and his glory. His glory. If God is the greatest being in existence, if he gave you life and breath, then glorifying God is both the duty and the privilege of the Christian. God is concerned about his glory being known, and we are better off when he is glorified. If we take the easy path, the only people who will be glorified are you or the world. If we follow God when he turns right, then God is going to be glorified. God's glory is great, and we are never so raised beyond ourselves than when we glorify God. I want to finish with this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in this body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Let's pray.